Hello and welcome to the Monday Science Podcast. This is the show for all your latest in science, tech and health, hosted by me, Dr. Bahija Raini Aitam. On Monday Science, I answer your science, tech and health questions, and if I don't have the answer, I'll find the experts in the field to answer them for you. Welcome back to Monday Science. Happy Monday. Before we go on to today's episode, we've got some good news. Monday Science is now on Instagram. Uh, You can follow us at Monday Science. We've got a lot planned for this week, which is our launch week and beyond. You can submit your questions via our Instagram as well as um, via email to mondayscience2020 at gmail.com or on our website. If you wish to send your question as a voice note, you can also do that on our website, which is mondayscience.wixsite.com forward slash podcast. In today's episode, which is episode 10, uh, I continue my conversation with Dr. Derek Gondongwe, uh, talking about his experience working at the University College London Hospitals, that's UCLH, during the pandemic. We join uh, Dr. Gondongwe talking us through his experience from April 2020. With every new condition, there's very little knowledge on how we manage the condition. And I think one of the things that as a pharmacist that we do really, really well, which I think happened really well from my perspective, was the just that influence of going, we're, let's not try things that we're not used to doing from a medication perspective. Let's do what we normally do best um, and then have a proper governance and ethical structure when we start talking about trialing new, new drugs. March of April was now going, we're in the height of it. And there was an evolving picture and understanding of how we start to understand the condition and how we're going to respond to, to managing it. And what became really obvious by the time, or really clear by the time we got to the end of April, was that uh, patients got sick, uh, and the, the really, really sick patients. Uh, sort of the first five to the first five to seven days admission to a critical care was touch and go. If they got past that, then actually they were ventilated for quite a long time. So by when we got into May, we, we had still had the unit full and expanded still, but this time the, the, the picture had changed in that we had a lot of patients who were alive, still really, really unwell and almost static for quite a while where it, it didn't look like they were, they were getting any better anytime soon. And from a pharmacist perspective, some of the drugs that we use, you start raising, um, or at least I start raising questions and they have worries about um, extended duration of an anxiolytic, for example, and what effect that will have on that person post-ICU. Uh, short-term uh, considerations change as the patients uh, start to, uh, are surviving and are surviving for a long time and requiring a lot of support for a long time. So we then have to start thinking about what other things am I, um, what other body systems could I damage by infusing this drug for a long-term perspective. Uh, so the other things that I did in the, in terms of my role, um, I, I was, as, as a lot of guideline development in that time, because um, we had to, we, we, we just didn't know how would you manage patients on renal replacement therapies, i.e. their kidneys aren't working, if they have COVID-19, does, their, does that change the way they manage the drug, with the, the way the body manages the drug, and how are we going to respond to that? And then in, in in, and to add in complexity to that was because we're having so many patients who needed renal replacement therapies, uh, we were running out of the 
the, the fluids that we normally use for renal replacement therapies. And, and we had to start thinking of alternative strategies for renal replacement therapies, which then changes that modality uh, and the efficacy of the uh, renal replacement therapy and therefore changes the way I would give dosing advice for a particular drug. So we had to come up with some guidance on that. Uh, we had to come up with some guidance around, uh, so we, what was really emerging was uh, patients with COVID uh, were in a pro-inflammatory state, uh, which led to a lot of uh, pro-thrombotic events, uh, some of which were subclinical and some of which were clinical. Uh, and it was clear that we needed to do um, prevent the, pro uh, the formation of blood clots uh, and where they formed, we treated them effectively. Uh, so again, working quite closely with the hematologist, uh, guidance was developed first locally uh, and then eventually nationally by um, uh, NICE and the intensive care societies and other bodies. Uh, I was involved in a lot of guideline development from uh, the Royal College of Anesthetists because they were writing guidance on you know, sedating patients and what options would you use if drug X wasn't available? Could you use drug Y and so forth? Uh, I was involved with uh, guideline development from with uh, NHS England and uh, improvement. Uh, again, just because we were at the call phase and we knew what was going on, we, I was in the uh, sort of in a in a better position uh, to be able to offer guidance on what we, how we would treat the patients. Um, uh, so yeah, so that's and then the final bit actually was actually for me personally was around staff well-being uh, in that. So as pharmacists, especially on critical care, we see a lot uh, more so than uh, the rest of our uh, our, our profession. Uh, we're skilled enough to predict or say how unwell a patient is based on how much drug they're getting, um, and it was also a very tough time because. Patients were passing without their families around because they weren't allowed in. Uh, and because we're human, there are some patients that just just hit you because they remind you of your grandmother or your mother or your sister or your bestie. You know, uh, and, and when you see that, the, the, the human response is, I'm going to try and help. And if that person doesn't pull through, uh, again, it affects staff. Uh, and like I said, there was also this, feeling uh, this buzz that this was a wartime situation uh, and I've never lived through a war I, I'm, I'm a man of a certain age uh, but I'm young enough that I haven't seen any um, war or be, lived in a country where war has happened uh, and that's probably uh, the majority of my my team uh, so again I was uh, I was worried about that and then of course we were also worried about whether or not we were going to uh, get COVID-19 uh, so in addition to just the can they do the job, I also had the uh, added worry of, well, actually, if 50% if of the critical care pharmacist workforce was down with COVID-19, how were we going to be able to provide a clinical service to the patients that had COVID-19? Um, so so the, the, the well-being and, uh, and balancing that with the management of staff uh, piece uh, was quite a big thing. Um, for me, just to make sure that my staff were, because I needed them to be, to 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 be emotional, because they're human beings and they're looking after uh, people, uh, but also to be effective and be able to do their jobs and make sure that we were providing the best service that we can provide. So that that piece was actually quite big in 
in everything that I was doing and in, in managing uh, patients and staff during the pandemic. Self-care has been such a interest. Well, it's an interesting topic in general, but I think in this time and, you know, probably do a whole nother episode about self-care and, and mental health of NHS staff uh, during the pandemic before, after, during, you know, um, because it, it it's been such a big topic uh, and it's good to know that you were you know looking out for your team and hopefully yourself as well to make sure that um you know everybody was focused and, and I can only imagine just seeing especially you know different patients different things and as you said like identifying with them in terms of family friends and and so forth and then just then still having to keep going in this time of complete uncertainty um and actually I just wanted to go with two points that I found quite interesting that you spoke about quite early on when you talked about um you know that first meeting and when you you, the initial thing was like okay so it's a virus we know that much so we're going to talk to experts (laughs) you know virologists but I, I guess there's that everybody now feels that they've become an expert in COVID uh COVID-19 um (laughs) whether because of you know I don't know social media or online and then also that that point around uh symptoms as well because the symptoms the initial symptoms I'm guessing in February versus what we now can have or or understand as potential symptoms now or lack thereof that must have been also that sort of okay these are what we think are the presenting symptoms so uh you know the fever the cough as the two main ones that we're trying to uh, that you know that were quite prominent at the time um and then i guess just how you've had to adapt your understanding of the or well i guess management of the of the condition based on our increased understanding of the types of symptoms that people may have or not have there was a lot of um frustration that when uh, thanks were being given, it was uh, thanks were only, you know, from government were only being given to doctors and nurses. And um, and there was a lot of, you know, but hold on, pharmacists are actually contributing a big deal. I do actually think it's important to highlight the specific contribution that um, if you can highlight specific contributions that you feel that pharmacists have made working in the NHS during the pandemic? I, th- I think the first one um, uh, is is actually the which is w- what the basic function of it or pharmacy is which is provision of the drug mm-hmm. and, um, I, and I must confess that actually COVID has as, as, as a profession we've become so good uh, on supplying the drug but actually people like me who work in clinical practice don't think about it so I assume when I write a prescription that the patient's going to get it because we've become so good at doing it that it's 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 like changing gears when you drive a a, a manual car you don't even think about the fact that you need to change gear you just do it and then and then you have to concentrate when you're starting to do, you're, you're doing a parallel parking or a th- three-point turn or something along those lines but actually the change the changing of the gear itself is something that you just do it subconsciously so I think for us as a profession the provision of the drug was actually something that we do so subconsciously that for the first time in my career, I was challenged to go, oh, do I have enough sedatives for X number of patients for the next week? And if I don't have them, 
if I don't have enough, where is it coming from? How soon is it going to get here? Will I have enough drug for my patient? That in itself is something that even us as a profession take for granted. That I definitely think was probably one of the biggest contributions that pharmacy made, which was, um, and I can definitely say this in my organisation, all patients who needed a particular drug got it. We move and, you know, and co- all credit to our procurement team because they, they were, uh, our lead described it as, uh, not that I've ever tried to do this, but she was saying, she was like, Derek, trying to get this drug was like trying to get tickets for a Madonna concert where you're on your laptop, you've got your phone on this on ongoing and you've got four devices around you and all you're trying to do is to get into the queue to buy concerts, tickets, tickets for a concert. And she said, that's exactly what was happening uh, in trying to get these drugs in. Uh, so I think full credit goes to our procurement teams uh, and just being able to continue the supply of the drugs that we were prescribing and, and making sure that our patients got it. The other thing, the other contributions that pharmacists got, and I think uh, made, and I'll, 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 I'll talk about our community, my community counterparts here, which was, even though I was at the uh, call face in terms of seeing the really, really unwell patients, the, the community pharmacists would have been the first port of call for anyone who felt really unwell. Uh, and as one who has dabbled in in the, the the primary care sector, I personally I felt that yes, the chatter uh, and the discourse that was coming out of the appreciation of community pharmacists uh, what should have been they should have been more highly high profile because I, I was very much shielded and protected. And by the time a patient gets to me, several things have happened. And technically, I mean. Yes, there was a risk that I would be exposed to COVID-19, but at least I was aware of that risk and I was equipped to be able to deal with it. Whereas I'm not definitely, and I haven't done any studies or read any studies on this, uh, but definitely in March, maybe up to mid-April, I'm not really sure how much protection our community counterparts had uh, to make sure that they were safe in doing their jobs. Because don't forget that even though I in secondary care was focused on managing patients with COVID-19. As as a population, right, as a population, patients with COVID-19 are a very small part of the population that has other healthcare conditions. So our community counterparts were absolutely instrumental in making sure that someone with diabetes got their diabetes treatment and actually didn't end up getting worse in that condition because people like me in secondary care were focused on COVID-19. So our community counterparts definitely did a, ma- I mean, I've read and listened uh, anecdotally to patients coming into hospital to go, oh yeah, my, my community pharmacist orders my, pres- my prescription online from my GP and then they deliver it to my doorstep with no touch and all this business, making sure that then, you know, uh, and I think community pharmacy sort of went all out and, and, and facilitated, bent over backwards to try and make sure that, you know, all those patients that were shielding that weren't going out to get their medication if they couldn't go they were having stuff delivered so I think yes praise should go to uh, my community counterparts because they kept the 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 chronic conditions that need continual treatment going such that hospitals were able to focus on uh, the COVID-19 pandemic because you can you imagine if I end up with people coming to the hospital because their diabetes has gone uh, all over the place but meanwhile we still have COVID-19 patients in the hospital that would have been um, quite 
uh, maybe not sort of a good thing to to manage for us. Um, and then the, the other things were actually around uh, the the exciting treatments that were coming out. Uh, and I, I talked about this to say there's a lot of trials. There was a lot of there was a lot a lot of information that was coming out um, to say oh you could try this or oh, you should be doing that or oh, th- this has you know has come up. Uh, and and pharmacists for the most part are under pressure more so than and and maybe uh, your listeners might not know this. So we are under pressure more so than Medic to agree and supply and provide drugs to patients. Uh, and, and one of our functions is to make sure that things are cost effective. So there is an understanding that the NHS doesn't have all the money in the world. Uh, and therefore, we need to make sure that the treatments that we use are, uh, for what they cost are beneficial to our population. Um, uh, and and one of our job roles is going, OK, so you're telling me that your drug will lower blood pressure by 10 percent uh, and it's going to cost a thousand pounds per month for that particular patient for the rest of their life. But actually, clinically, what does lowering a blood pressure by 10 percent mean to that patient? What does that mean to their life expectancy? Mm. Well, it might look good on paper that it's, it lowers it by 10 percent, but actually that person is still at risk of dying a because 10, a 10% reduction is not a good enough reduction, right? Um, uh, and, and of course, we, we get, uh, when you've got a new condition like this, they, that is amplified, you know, 200 fold, where everyone is coming in with, oh, I've just done this, and this has happened. And in critical care, particularly, where, uh, so you, you can uh, actually I should explain so in terms of uh, the, the proportion of beds that a critical care a, a critical care unit has in relation to the rest of the hospital right critical care units are quite tiny so the, the vast majority of the beds in a hospital are for general ward care and usually in each hospital you have one ward where it's critical care um, so in my hospital the, the the average number of beds per ward is about 50. Uh, and yet we only have 35 critical care beds on the main unit and we've got 10 wards maybe of general wards on on one site so you can imagine so 10 wards of 50-ish beds is 500 patients but actually we only have 35 wards beds beds for critical care right so as a result if you're trying to do a trial in critical care medicine it's a randomized controlled trial in critical care medicine randomized control trials tend to not have huge numbers of patients because the population that we recruit from is small to start off with. So what you tend to then find is uh, multi-center um, randomized control trials. They're the ones that come with really big numbers. But actually, for the most part, you get single center studies with numbers of 12, 20, maybe 50 patients reviewed over a year's time. So we're used to making clinical decisions based on evidence of a very small population which might not be indicative to the general population that you're trying to treat Uh, and in COVID-19 again that was really amplified so there was a lot of information coming out of every um, every clinician who treated something and thought they saw some difference in the three patients that they treated then reported it in the public domain and then that that then became a oh uh, should we be using this treatment because so-and-so did this and that's quite um, hazardous because uh, and, and in critical care this has happened where some drugs based on a single study uh, showed a lot of benefit people got really really excited 
started using the drug. And then when you start using it in a bigger population, it then re- you then realize, oh, actually, uh, there's quite a big incidence of harm when you use this drug. And indeed, there's been cases in the public domain where drugs have been recalled because the the, the risk of mortality outweighed the benefit that you would get from that drug, which was exposed when multiple bigger RCTs were happening as opposed to single center studies. Mm-hmm. So, so the contribution that we brought to this uh, from a research perspective was putting that into context to go, actually, guys, let's think about this. This, this study treated 12 patients. We just don't have enough information yet to say we should be using this on every single patient that we have coming through the doors with COVID-19. I think you, you made a comment about writing a prescription. That could be helpful because not everyone knows that pharmacists oh. can write prescriptions. Yes. Um, so you're an independent prescriber, aren't you? I am, yeah. But could you just let us know what's an independent prescriber? So in, in just a bit of background, in recognising that we're not training enough, training and retaining enough doctors uh, in the country, uh, the, the government introduced non-medical prescribers uh, and these, uh, at the moment, professions that can be non-medical prescribers are nurses, pharmacists, uh, paramedics, I think. I'm not quite sure, actually. I need to check that. Um, so I, know, I think paramedics and dietitians can be supplementary prescribers. And what a non-medical prescriber is, is someone who, within their professional capacity and a defined scope of practice, is able to prescribe ongoing, to no, to, to diagnose and prescribe treatments for a particular condition. Um, and for myself and for pharmacists in general, we do a, a diploma in independent prescribing, it's called. Uh, and actually, I should have mentioned that when I was introducing myself to say I did mine. Uh, a few years ago on and my scope and my area of interest is around chronic pain in the perioperative period so not so chronic acute pain in the perioperative period Uh, and by that I mean that when um, patients come in for surgery obviously we're introducing an insult by um, performing the surgery itself so we know that patients will be in pain after the surgery Uh, and sadly we are not very good uh, uh, in our healthcare system in managing pain effectively uh, for a whole myriad of reasons, uh, which um, I, I won't delve into right now, but if people, I mean, you only have to um, uh, do a cursory literature search and you'll find a whole myriad of reasons as to why we're not very good at managing acute pain in secondary care settings. Uh, and in particular on critical care, because that's when patients would come or to high dependency units where they would come immediately post-surgery. Uh, so yeah, so I did my independent prescribing with a view to uh, help uh, managing uh, pain uh, in, in the form of identifying it and prescribing uh, and monitoring the right level of um, pain relief. And, and of course, your listeners will, um, will may or may not know that the, the pain is also a, a delicate balance between what our patients are reporting as how much pain they're in and, and making sure that I give them enough drug to be able to treat their pain, make them comfortable and maybe, maybe make them to be able to um, uh, go back to normal life as soon as possible. But equally so, not to create addiction because the um, analgesics that we use, some of them have uh, been shown and demonstrated to cause addiction uh, um, 
and it becomes so in the, in the US particularly the use of oxycodone is a is a, a big problem where patients go in for surgery and come out with um, addictions to oxycodone and then have to be weaned off and and the effects that has on society productivity and yada 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 so that's what my interest is and it's something that I've um, I do actively in my job role uh, and I'm looking at it from a research perspective and and one of the things that I'm currently doing is just reviewing what we did in the COVID pandemic in as far as pain and uh, sedation was is concerned uh, whether we got it right and what we should do better uh, if uh, slash when or slash whatever happens with COVID going forward. Okay, so we've come to the end of the podcast. I don't know if you've got maybe two or three key take-home messages that you'd like our listeners to, uh, yeah, take away with them from from this uh, interview. So I guess, so message number one would be that maybe just an understanding and a promotion of what pharmacists do um, and what we bring uh, to the healthcare setting and the unique skills that we bring to a healthcare setting. Uh, that, like I said in my in my interview, without actually getting the drug to the patient, then everything else is 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 a waste of time. So we could get the right diagnosis, we could do all that business, but if we can't get the right drug to the right patient in the right form at the right time, then we we ha- we have uh, a serious problem. My second point would be around just that pharmacists have made a a a, a crucial role, or have had a crucial role. Uh, in in the COVID-19 pandemic response. Uh, so much so that I, I personally, uh, and I know my, my colleagues did the same, personally welcomed, uh, you know, the endorsements that we got from the Intensive Care Society uh, of Great Britain uh, and the Royal, Fa- uh, uh, and the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine uh, in actually saying, yes, we need pharmacists on critical care units. Um, obviously, I, I am biased and they'll say we do a really, really good job and those uh, two organisations recognise it. Um, and right now, if, you, if your audiences are, if some of your audience are aspiring to be pharmacists or to join the profession, um, a critical case is an exciting bit to work. Yeah, we, we, we get to use a significant part of the, the knowledge that we gain from our training and are really at the cutting edge of looking after uh, 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 patients in in the in the most clinical need when they're most clinical need. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Derek Gondongo. It's been an absolute pleasure having Thank you. Thank you for having uh, me. On the show. <laughs> yes, and we hope to have you again because I feel like there's going to be we're going to need some more updates and uh, understanding of what's going on at uh, on the ground, really managing mm. COVID. So thank you again for your time. That's all right. Thank you for having me uh, uh, and the opportunity to just uh, talk about what I do, which is really weird because it's not something that one does often. So thank you for, for, for the, the opportunity. Thanks for joining us this week on the Monday Science Podcast. Make sure to visit our website. Uh, Details are in the episode description where you can subscribe to make sure that you never miss the show. Uh, So catch up with you next week. Bye.